Our text this afternoon comes to us from the beginning of the, John's first epistle. In connection with that, we'll first turn to uh, John's gospel. We'll read together John chapter 17. John 17 is commonly called the high priestly prayer of our Lord. And you should remember sort of the context here. Jesus is giving this long discourse, it's called, a long sermon, if you will, in the upper room. He's there with his disciples. By this point, uh, Judas has already left the room. And what he's doing is preparing his disciples for his imminent departure. And so he's been teaching them and encouraging them. And finally, at the height of his encouragement to them, he gives this prayer in John 17. So we'll read together that chapter. Keep in mind that the disciples are there with, with Jesus. And notice also how he prays for them in particular. John 17. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
that they, may, they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared them, declared to them your name, and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So far the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus. Let's turn ahead now to the first letter, the first epistle of John, where we'll read our text. Our text being the first four verses of 1 John 1. John writes there, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. So far, our text. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, beginnings are important. How many motivational quotes can you think of that try to stress this point? Think of ones like this, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. A good beginning makes a good ending. And perhaps you have experienced this sort of thing even in your own life. Projects that get off to a good start perhaps seem to go more smoothly. When you make a good beginning on an assignment, you see that the assignment perhaps comes together. Maybe you notice it day to day even when you get off to a good start in the morning perhaps. You, it seems like the whole day progresses much better. More productive, better mood perhaps. And even when it comes to other people and our relationships with them, think about how much we stress making a good first impression. Beginnings are important. And a good first impression is important also when it comes to writing, as we know. Have you ever found yourself lost in a book, for example, that has a really gripping beginning to it? I'm sure you all, at one point or another, have paged through a magazine, and maybe you read the opening paragraph of an article, and if it's not interesting, you probably turn the page. 
But if it is interesting, how often is it that you're not drawn in? How often is it that you're not hooked? You see, beginnings are a pivotal, they are an important part. And that's exactly what the Apostle John is doing here in our text as well. That is, when John first takes his pen and he first takes his ink, this is the thing that he wants to say first. This is the thing that he needs to get out most urgently, we could say. And when we think of the ancient context, we can imagine that this was the first thing that these Christians would have heard when this letter was read to them. Likely these letters were sent to churches. And these letters would have been read publicly in a worship service. So this is the first thing that they hear. And it's also the first thing for us that we now read in our Bibles in the 21st century. And we notice right away that there is some urgency because we see that John does not begin with a standard introduction. He does not say, this is John. He does not say, John, an apostle to the church at so-and-so. Instead, he begins right off the bat. He says, there's something more important. There's something more important that you need to know about, and it's the word of life. You see, it's a personal plea. There's this urgency from John to you, to me, this, morning, this afternoon, rather. And he describes it not in a way that is um, beyond our reach, but he describes it in a way that is very relatable. We notice that he uses these concepts such as hearing, such as seeing, such as touching. These are things that we know. These are things that we know um, how they work. We know the feeling, as it were. And John uses this to drive the point home. That is to say, Jesus Christ, the word of life, has broken into the world. We see that this is indeed a message with your name on the address label. It's to you. It's to me. It's to us all. And that's our theme this afternoon. The word of life is proclaimed to you. We'll see three parts to our text. The first part is the amazing appearing of this life. John simply gets right into it. His urgency, his passion in these verses is, is clear. He doesn't write, as you can tell, in a carefully planned out way. He doesn't write in a way that has long sentences, for example. But it's very broken up. It's very disjointed. We see that he begins with a series of that which clauses. That which was from the beginning. That which we have heard. That which we have seen with our eyes. That which we have looked upon. And this whole time he doesn't quite give us exactly what it is that he's speaking about. There's something cinematic here. There's some suspense. That as John is filling in, as it were, all these peripheral details... And we're left with the question, well, what is it? It builds our anticipation. What was it that you heard? What was it that you saw? What was it that you touched? Finally, at the beginning, at the end, rather, of verse 1, John gives us the key. He says it's concerning the word of life. It's all about the word of life. So in verse 2, then, John gets to the heart this is what he wants to convey so urgently. Verse 2, he says, the life was manifested. And we have seen, and we bear witness. 
and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Is the word of life has been manifested. The word of life that was from the beginning, that was with the Father, has been made visible. What exactly does John mean here? What is this word, what is this life that is so important to John, that totally transforms his life, that makes him want to share it with all these Christians? Or better, the question is rather, who? Who is this life? Well, that life, brothers and sisters, that word of life has a capital W in our text because it's Jesus. It's the second person of the Trinity. It's the second person of the Trinity who was from the beginning with the Father. We read about that in John 17, for example, in in Jesus' high priestly prayer. He speaks about the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. Right? We see that Jesus is not a character that has a beginning in Matthew 1 or in Mark 1 or in Luke 1. No, Jesus is a person. Jesus is God who has a beginning much before that. In fact, the beginning is even before Genesis 1, before the world existed. And so this Son of God, this eternal Son of God, is the life that has now been made manifest. That is, He has broken into the world, He has come into the world in human form. And this, John is simply reiterating, indeed, that truth that he gave at the beginning of his own gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We see also that just like John 1, Jesus is called the Word, that is, he's called the Logos. But here in this chapter, we see actually that John gets more specific, as it were, or he adds a layer to this concept. He calls Jesus the Word of Life. And it really shouldn't come to us as a surprise that John would speak about Jesus in this way. That is, Jesus brought a message of life. He preached a message that brought life. But more than that, he was the word, he was the message of life embodied himself. That is, Jesus did not simply know a lot about life. But in fact, he was the life himself. He was the life that came into a dead world. Think of a doctor, for example. A doctor knows a lot about health. And so he tries to give you remedies to stimulate your health in one way or another. But a doctor is not health himself. A doctor is not health herself. They cannot give their health to you. They cannot give life to you. And for all you know, your doctor might be deathly ill themselves. So in this respect, Jesus is not at all like a doctor. That is to say, life was not something external to him. Life is not something that he was able to manipulate because he was an intelligent human being. Or because he was God, he came with a vast knowledge. No, it was more than that. When he preached about the bread of life, he was not pointing his followers to something external. 
He was preaching about himself. When Jesus proclaimed the way, the truth, and the life, he did not give them a prescription. He did not give his disciples a 10-step program. Here's how you get better. No, he pointed them to himself. When Martha, remember, when Martha was mourning the death of her brother Lazarus, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And what does Jesus do next? He raises Lazarus from the dead. He totally justifies what he's just said. He gives life to Lazarus. He he spoke, Lazarus, come out. And the miracle is that the dead man came out of the tomb. That's the word of life in action. Giving life. It's worth considering what would it mean for us if Jesus had remained hidden. That is, what if John did not have this great message to give? What if the word of life had not been made manifest? If the Son of God, the life, dwelled with the Father in glory from eternity, what if he continued simply to do just that? That is, if the Son continued to dwell in perfect holiness with the Father in heaven, but never revealed himself on earth, how lost we would be. God would still be all-glorious, still dwelling in imperfect and unapproachable light. But we, where would we, we be? We would be dwelling in a world under the curse. A world under the curse of death. That is to say, without this word of life, there is no hope. Because the fall into sin was also a fall into death, wasn't it? That is physical death that reigns over every person. Spiritual death, separation from God also reigns. And this backdrop is what gives John's message so much urgency. A theologian named Horatius Bonar, he describes Christ's incarnation, his coming into the flesh, he describes it like this. And then the life entered, not like a monarch to take possession of a fitting palace, but like spring, coming to take possession of a wintry earth, like day spring coming to take possession of the darkened skies. What an entrance. See, this is John's urgent message. He came. It's the amazing appearing of life. Jesus said, I come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Right? The light of the world, the life of the world broke into the darkness. And brothers and sisters, Christ revealed himself. Christ manifested himself that we may have life. You see, it's an event, it's a truth that changes everything about this world. It changes everything about the way we live in it. He became a human being so that human beings like us could have life. It's life achieved through his death on the cross. Life for us. And it's so necessary, isn't it? Because we are totally depraved, we are totally dead in our sins, we're inclined to sin over and over again. We can think over this past week even, how often we desire the wrong thing, how often we choose the wrong thing. And Brothers and sisters, whether you try this or that, 
to get you out of a, yourself out of a rut. There is no earthly remedy. There's no 10-step plan that will solve this because dead people don't need medicine. Dead people need resurrection. Who is the resurrection and the life? It is Jesus. You need Jesus Christ, word of life who has broken into the world. But as we see, it's not only spiritual death that John wants to stress. It's also about physical life. We all face death in our lives. A loved one torn away, for example. And this world can seem like a night sky, as it were. A night sky that is pitch black. That is, every person is taken. Death takes and it takes and it takes and it, it leaves grieving people behind. But John writes here that the word of life has broken into that night sky. That is, Christ is the dawn, if it, as it were, in that night sky. That this, this world, this world also a physical death, it also has life in it now. That is, whoever believes in this word of life, though you may die, yet shall you live. That is, if you believe, then, as we confessed, there's also a resurrection of the body. Right? We confess that in the Apostles' Creed. That is, we have this sure hope of our bodies being raised and our bodies being glorified. That is, there's a hope of a world with pain no more, of death no more, just life, just eternal life with God. This is what we are called to believe as Christians, and it's ours in Christ, and it's all because the word of life has made himself manifest, has come into the world. It's an amazing, amazing appearance. But this takes us to the second point that John wants to stress, which is the authoritative witness to this life. As John is writing this, he's likely an older man. He had been exiled to the island of Patmos. That was where he received uh, revelation. But now he's back. He's returned to likely the city of Ephesus. And it's probably 50 years already after Christ's death and resurrection. That is to say the church has continued to spread and the church has continued to move forward. But now there is also a new challenge and this new challenge is false teaching. False teaching on the rise. If you were to look ahead to chapter 2 of our letter, you would see that there's this group of people whether they're heretics or whether they are false believers, we are, can't be too sure. But there is this group of people who have left the church. And so part of John's purpose in this letter is to assure the remaining Christians that what they've believed in is true and that staying in the church, just as they've done, has been the right thing to do. We read that this group that had left these false believers had denied that Jesus is the Christ. That is chapter 2, verse 22. And it seems that this could be an early heresy known as Gnosticism, perhaps not full Gnosticism as we often speak of it, but an early form of it. That is, this belief that there is a clear divide between matter and spirit, and that matter, physical things, are inherently evil, inherently wicked, 
But that spirit that is the supernatural, what is not physical, is inherently good. And the key tenet of this belief was that these two sides of the coin could not mesh. That is, they could not become one. And so they claimed that Jesus, in his divine nature, he has a divine nature, a human nature, they claimed that God could not become a truly physical being. That is, that Jesus' divine nature had only sort of possessed or had only sat on top of his body. That is, they never truly became one. They claimed that his two natures were like oil and water. That is, try as you might, stir them up as you might, they cannot come together. They claimed that Jesus truly did not become one with his human nature. He just seemed or he looked, he appeared like he was a human being. And so what does John do now to encourage these Christians and combat this error? Well, he wants to make it very clear that the life entered into the world, not only spiritually, but also physically. That is, it did not just look like, it did not just seem like the Son of God was a human being, but he was a real, he was a historical human being. John says, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have looked upon, that which our hands have handled, John says, I myself, together with the other apostles, were eyewitnesses of this great miracle. Were eyewitnesses of this life appearing in the world. Notice that there's a sort of a progression in verse 1, as it were. That is, it goes from hearing, to seeing, to looking upon, and finally, to touching. It's a progression from what is more abstract, as it were, to what is more concrete. Think of it like this. If someone said, I heard about this or that, we might ask them, well, did you see it? If we're we're looking for more proof. If someone says, I saw this, I heard that, we might ask, well, did you touch it? That is, did you get your hands on it? You see, from hearing to seeing to touching... Each seems to come with a greater degree of certainty. And so John is is answering our doubts with this verse. And in fact, there's no other person who could be a stronger witness than John. John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. When Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room, before Jesus is betrayed, during which Jesus gave his high priestly prayer, as we just read, we read that John is sitting right beside Jesus. And so now this man who has been so close to our Savior, probably nobody closer, tells us at the beginning of this letter, he says, I heard Jesus. I heard him preach about the kingdom of God. I heard him as he prayed earnestly. And I saw him, I saw him physically with my own eye." You'll notice that John mentions seeing twice. First he says, that which we have seen with our eyes. And then secondly, he says, that which we have looked upon. And that second word is a lot stronger. It doesn't mean to simply 
look upon, but more. It's to engage intently at something. It's to look at something very closely. That is, it is to examine something, to put it under scrutiny. And so John comes to us now at the beginning of this letter and says, I looked upon him, not in a passing sort of way, but I looked upon him with with wonder, with awe. I didn't merely glance over him, but I, as it were, I looked a second time. That is, in his appearance, it left an impression with me. Even more, I touched him with my own hands. Remember, after Jesus rose from the dead, he said, Why are you troubled, disciples? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me. Touch me and see. See, John heard. John saw. John touched the word of life. He touched this miracle, this transforming truth. He was an eyewitness to it. Should we be so concerned with this eyewitness testimony? The errors that John is facing, the false teaching that existed in the ancient world, does it exist for us too? Does it exist today? You see, it is possible for us in a similar way to not quite fully embrace the reality of Christ's incarnation. We live in a world that is so much more concerned with scientific proof than it is with eyewitness testimony. Our world thinks if it can't be scientifically proven, then it shouldn't be believed. Others think of Jesus merely as a nice myth. Many people in our world today view the Bible as a kind of self-help book. If it works for you, great. But a real human, God made flesh, even in many so-called Christian churches, they've abandoned this notion. And it's even possible in a congregation, in a church like our own, where we do confess the reality of the incarnation, it's possible to confess it without truly wrestling with those implications. We can consider in our own faith life, we can consider Jesus to be too far off. We can consider him to be too distant. We consider, can consider him to be too transcendent. That is, we can think he doesn't quite understand. He can't relate with me. He was God, and yes, he journeyed in our world, but he never really came to stay. He never set up camp, as it were. We might think to ourselves, he doesn't, know, he doesn't know my sickness. He doesn't know my fear. He doesn't know temptation. And so he doesn't fully know me either. But this is why John's letter comes to us today too in the 21st century. It's not merely us reading a carbon copy of a letter from the ancient world. But no, John proclaims it to us today. You see, Jesus was a real human. That is, he interacted with, he had relationships with other real human beings. The word of life broke into the the human race. And so when we struggle, brothers and sisters, with the humanness, or when we struggle with the fallenness of our own lives, or when we struggle with the humanness or the fallenness of the church, 
full of human, full of sinful people, susceptible to division, fragmentation, just as it was in John's day. He speaks about groups separating. Well, we can be certain that that is the destination. That is the place. That was the realm where the eternal life was made manifest. That is, Jesus came into this world. The same world that I live in. The same world that you live in. And although now he has ascended into heaven, he still remains. Remains through the presence of his Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit that dwells in our hearts. Within you and me, there is the Holy Spirit dwelling. Evidence. True evidence that the word of life on that first Christmas morning broke into the world. And you see that monumental event has abiding results that continue to even to this day. And John ends our text with these results. He has two so that clauses. He gives two results that arise from this miracle. Two goals also that he hopes will materialize for his readers. The working, the results of Jesus Christ. The first result that he mentions is fellowship. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It's interesting that John does not say that the result of this word of life is salvation, but rather he speaks about fellowship. A fellowship with the apostles, between the apostles and the church, But not only a fellowship with them, but also a fellowship even with God. Fellowship with the Father and His Son. He does not say the result is that you may be saved. But in fact, you could say that fellowship is a beautiful term. It's a beautiful term to describe salvation. In fact, it's even a a fuller expression of the same concept. When we consider that sin caused great divide... Great divide between God and mankind. We know Adam and Eve cast out of the Garden of Eden. Death comes into the picture. But now through Christ there is this great reversal. That is, there is now reconciliation between God and man. In Christ, God and man are brought back together. They're brought back into fellowship. Fellowship with the Father. Fellowship with Jesus Christ. That is the word of life in action. That is a beautiful picture of salvation. And that fellowship that we have with God now, it's also expressed as fellowship with one another, isn't it? And in John 17, we see Jesus earnestly pray for this to happen in the church. He prays that they, that is his disciples, that is all his followers, they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, That unity that is beyond our understanding, that unity which the Father and the Son shared before the world was ever created, Jesus wants that kind of a unity in the church. He wants that kind of a unity to appear in the body of Christ. 
And there's no way that we can do this as a human being, is there? The only possibility for this unity is because the word of life entered the world and was made manifest. And so now we experience a further miracle, the communion of saints, that we have fellowship with each other, not only with us here in this building, but throughout the world, and not only with people throughout the world, but also throughout all time, the church of all ages. We speak about that often when we sing the Apostles' Creed, confess with the church of all times and places. There's unity between us all, unity in the good news of the gospel. The second result that John gives us in this passage is joy. In verse 4, he says, we, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. John calls it your uh, joy. And that is to say it's a plural joy. John is not speaking here about the singular you, as in you, one individual, or as you, the individual reader, but it is a plural. That he's speaking about all of you. We write so that your joy as a, as a community, your joy as a group, might be full. It's a joy shared not only among the apostles, but also all believers. And it's a joy that's experienced not in isolation, but in fellowship. That is, it's a together sort of joy. Not a joy in isolation from one another. Not a joy experienced in cliques or factions or small groups. Not even a joy merely on a personal level. But John has a fuller vision. He says it's the joy of us all together, united in Christ. And this also was something that the Lord Jesus prayed for, wasn't it? In John 17, that they may have my joy, he prays. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. My joy, says Jesus. That is the joy that I have. The joy that I have in relationship to the Father. The joy that I have in knowing the wonderful plan of salvation that has been decreed from eternity. The joy that I have in knowing the eternal destiny of every Christian. The joy that I have in knowing the fullness of God, beholding Him face to face. I pray, says Jesus, that that joy may be made full in also my disciples, in my followers. This joy is a gift to us from Christ Himself. Robert Murray McShane has an insightful comment about this fullness of joy. He says, Other joys are not filling. Creature joys, he says, that is earthly sorts of joys, only fill a small part of the soul. But one smile of God fills the heart more than 10,000 smiles of the world. Indeed, we experience joy in this life, we do, and that's a gift of God. But it is limited. That is, it's not yet full. But there's a special joy from fellowship with God. And that's what McShane describes as being caused by the smile of God. And John, being that beloved disciple, he certainly experienced the joy of being in Jesus' presence. But we notice that John does not now reminisce about the good old days, does he? But when Jesus was on earth, 
The way he writes makes it clear that the joy is given to us by Christ still today, even now. And in fact, for John, the joy of knowing Christ is something that continues to increase. Something that becomes more and more full, even for himself. Even where the church is struggling with false teaching, even where Jesus is not on earth but in heaven, even in this situation for John, joy is something that is being made more and more and more full. And for the Christian, us included, joy has an eternal perspective, doesn't it? The Heidelberg Catechism puts it so beautifully in Lord's Day 22. It says, since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. What is the beautiful contrast, what is the beautiful difference between our text and what we read in Lord's Day 22? Lord's Day 22 says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard. That is, John saw Jesus, John heard Jesus, but even for a disciple, the closest disciple to Jesus during his earthly ministry, there's still an even fuller joy coming. That is, there's something in store that no person has ever seen, that no person has ever heard, that no person has ever looked upon, that no person has ever handled with their hands. Eternal life. Much more full, much more full of joy. These are the two abiding results, brothers and sisters. Fellowship and joy. And so the question before us this afternoon is, are these results visible? Is there joy among us? Or is there bitterness? Is there fellowship? Or is there division? If there is joy in fellowship, then the church shines brightly as a light to the world. Then the church, by its example, is proof, living proof that the word of life has broken in, that something transformational has happened. But brothers and sisters, if joy and fellowship are not present among us, then we're not shining as we ought to be. And there is only one way to increase joy and fellowship with one another. That is, we need to consider the gospel, the good news, whether that be for the first time, whether that be for the hundredth time, whether that be for the thousandth time. We need to consider that Christ, Christ came once already, that although he was the eternal king, he did not stay in heaven, he did not cling to that glory, but he gave it up. He emptied himself. He came to earth in the humblest form, in a manger, town of Bethlehem, and further he humbled himself even down to the point of death, and even further still to the point of death on a cross. By knowing this, this is how we have that joy. This is how we have that fellowship with one another. So brothers and sisters, let the coming of the word of life 
Jesus' first coming also fuel your expectation for the second coming. We will see Christ Jesus ourselves. As we will hear that trumpet physically with our own ears. We will see him physically with our own eyes descending from heaven. And so now in the present, we hold on to the gospel eyewitness testimony of John. Hear the call of the gospel and believe. From it we have fellowship. From it we have joy. But brothers and sisters, also in the future, we will see it physically for ourselves. Let's praise the Lord Jesus for his marvelous work. Amen.